everybody, I'm Gretchen Bridgers of the Always a Lessons Empowering Educators podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Devil's Advocate, a leader of learning podcast series. Join co-hosts Rochelle Danae Poth, and me, Dan Krinas, as we tackle trending topics in education from all angles, backed by sound research, where no topic is too big or too small and where you can be part of the action. Let's dive right in. Well, welcome back once again, listeners, to another installment here of The Devil's Advocate. And for this installment, for this conversation, we're going to be talking about Assessment and grading, which is, of course, always a trending topic in education, but uh, for maybe different reasons. And I think that right now in uh, in the state of affairs that we see ourselves in in education, it brings up, I think, even more complications when we talk about hybrid learning and, and distance learning. But before we get to all that, Rochelle, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I It's amazing to me how quickly the time passes because I feel like we've just had conversations and next thing you know, we're having the conversation again. So good to be here. Good to see you. Looking forward to our discussion today. I was thinking the same thing. You know, it's amazing. It is amazing. Uh, when we only do these every month and we're, we, I feel like it was a few days ago and I don't know exactly what that means. I guess just there's so much going on right now that time is passing very quickly. Yeah, I agree. And I feel, feel that sometimes like I don't go very many places, but the few places I do go, like I had to go to the doctor and I thought, I feel like I was just here and it had actually been six months, but my, you know, the number of times that I go out places, it's, it doesn't feel like that great distance of time. I went, oh, well, that's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, time is flying by and there is so much going on. All right. Speaking of so much going on, assessment and grading. Um, actually, I wanted to start out with an interesting blog post that I found. And, and when I talk about research all the time, I, I hesitate to, to look at blogs because that's not real research. And, and sometimes uh, whoever, depending on who's writing the blog and what their style is, potentially they could pull in research. But here's why I did it. Um, you know, we call the show Devil's Advocate because I want to, you know, I want to respect both sides or all sides to a, a topic. And certainly assessment and grading has multiple sides. Um, but to be honest, it's hard to find research about why traditional assessment and grading is the right way to do it. But I found a blog post and I, I almost hate uh, throwing the the person's name out here, but I'm going to do it anyway because, hey, they put this in print and it's on the, the, the internet. Uh, so this is by Patricia Willis, written or at least published back in February 2017 on the study.com blog. And it's titled Five Reasons Why I Believe in Letter Grades for My Students. And I want to throw it out here because I figure the devil's advocate or devil's advocate side of the argument is why we should move toward more non-traditional, you know, assessment and grading. So here it is. The five reasons why, um, let me get her name again. Patricia says that traditional grading is maybe better for students. Number one, it encourages competition. She says they are willing to work hard because they want to be first among their peers. When everyone in class gets the same score, a pass, for example, for completing an assignment on time, there is little incentive for students to work hard. Number two, it's easy to quantify. 
With letter grades, students can see at a glance what's working and what's not and make a plan to improve. Number three is that parents understand traditional grading better. Most parents are familiar with letter the letter grading system. It's what they had when they were in school. I hate that argument. I really do. Um, number, what are we up to? Number four is that it's a clear measure for students. When grading assignments, I use a traditional scale to determine the letter grade. This makes it easy for students to understand their grades and calculate the scores they need to achieve blah, 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 blah. Letter grades also have a proven track record with students and help to motivate them when a topic isn't enough to hold their attention. Interesting point. Uh, and then finally, oh, oh, by the way, I also need to make this interesting point. Actually, uh, she did it already in this blog post. Since most colleges and universities still rely on letter grades to measure student achievement, it's a system they had better be familiar with before they leave school, meaning high school. And the fifth and final reason why potentially uh, traditional grading may be beneficial or better for students than non-traditional grading, it's, it acts as awards, uh, I'm sorry, it awards those who work for it. It awards, grades award those who work for it. The explanation here is students who skate through a course doing only what is essential get the same grade as those who apply themselves. That's, that's the argument there. So... I figured we'd start there, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on some of those reasons for the the pro side of traditional grading. Yeah, well, you may have to go back through them again because I I didn't write them <laughs> so, down. There were a couple. No, so okay. what, what was the first? Encourages one? competition, okay. easy to quantify. My least favorite of all these is that it's for parents to better understand. Uh, that it's a clear measure for students, and it awards those who work for it. Wow. Uh, Are any of those jumping out at you in particular? Yeah, at varying times. I mean, I, the one that I'll pick first is about the, the parents, because I do know just even as a kid going through school all those years ago, and even at any point in school, I mean, parents do want to know how students are doing. And traditionally, that has come in the form of a grade. And the grade itself may be different from whether you're in elementary school, where it's like satisfactory, unsatisfactory, could have been passing, fail, might have been A through E in some cases, because I've been in some schools where the, the F was not used for a letter grade. Uh, and it does, in the traditional sense, I guess, help parents and families and students, whoever, to know where students are. So I got a C in geometry. For myself, I got a couple of Fs in geometry, which told my parents and myself I was completely failing, which I was. And then when I did improve and, and whatever it took me to kind of get on the right track, I got some A's and I ended up with a C for the year. So that pretty much said, I guess, that I was average. Uh, so parents do want to know what the scores are, what the grades are. But then again, the problem that comes back to it where I kind of push back a little bit is what do those grades actually mean? Because the grading scale itself for some schools are different. I think in my high school for an A, it was a 93 to a 100. It wasn't the full 90 on up. And you might've had an 85% and that was like a B minus or some other breakdown. So that one did stick out to me at first because I, I do see that being a valid point. But yeah, what, what's the grade? Uh, not so much the percentage, but what's the actual grade? However, on the flip side of that, I've had conversations where students will say, well, I, I got a 78 or I got a 72. 
And that's terrible. So we have the conversation about like, okay, but what, what are you learning from this course? I don't worry so much about the, the points and the grade that they'll say, well, my parents care about the grade. And I said, but on the report card, it's showing that you got a C. It doesn't necessarily say that it's a 72 or it's a 78. It says it's a C. So lots of conversation that we can have about that. Like, should there be grades? I don't know. Like everybody has grades and a big problem in the spring, not to totally take over on this one, but a lot of schools then broke that traditional grading and went to pass fail, which then the big conversation was, well, what happens when these students are applying to college if they're going on to college? And how do you equate the pass fail with the traditional grading system to transfer that to college? So lots of things that we can talk about so for that. It's interesting. Okay. Let, let's take the argument there that, uh, Patricia makes in this blog post again about uh, the fact that most colleges and universities still rely on letter grades to measure student achievement. Um, but she, in my opinion, based on what you just said, this blog post that she wrote almost contradicts herself in the sense that she says that letter grades in particular make it so that there's a clear measure for students to understand. Uh, what, what you just said, and I agree 100%, is that it's different across the board from school to school, sometimes even classroom to classroom, unfortunately, and it makes it difficult. It's not what I would consider to be a clear measure at all. And some high schools do it differently than college, so that makes it difficult. And so I think to argue for traditional grades, especially at that the upperclassmen high school level, uh, is difficult in saying, well, colleges do it where they have, you know, a grade point average or or letter grades or whatever it is when schools and maybe even classroom to classroom do it so differently. I, I don't know that that's a good argument, you know? Yeah, it it is interesting to see just across, I mean, people that I know, the schools that they're in, and even when it comes to some grades, talking about like we could totally get into the standards-based grading uh, but the breakdown in, in the weight that's given to grades. So I, I don't know. It's, it is a, I don't want to say it's a touchy subject, but it's something that has been around for a really long time. Obviously, when I was a kid, uh, as an adult, in my different courses that I took, whether it was getting a master's, the law degree, or any type of course, I mean, there are grades that are given and it does indicate where you are in terms of learning, or I guess in the sense when people share grades in terms of your learning with the others in your classroom and, and deciding your progress to move forward. So, mm. yeah, you mentioned standards-based grading. I'd love to come back to that soon. Um, I, I also found, so I, I did find some more research as you know, I would, or as you probably expected I would. And uh, there's an article here by Douglas Reeves came out in one of my favorite journals, educational leadership, because that's, that's put out by ASCD. And he talks about three like overarching toxic grading practices. So sort of sticking with this theme of like traditional grades, uh, I wanted to just throw these out there as well. And then maybe we can work our way back around to the conversation of, uh, you know, standards-based grading and, and non-traditional grading and things that over time have proven probably to be more effective for student learning. So <clears throat> let me go back uh, to the toxic grading practices. Number one, the use of zeros for missing work. The use of zeros for missing work. Number two, using the average of all scores through a grading period. So, you know, not weighing different assignments and different assessments, but rather 
just throwing them all in a calculator, averaging them and calling that your fi- a, a student's final grade. So number one, the use of zeros. Number two, averaging all the scores. And then number three, and you don't, I, I, you correct me if I'm wrong, I, I, I don't see this often at a K-12 level uh, mm-hmm. so much as I do at a higher ed level, the use of a single assessment or assignment that will make or break a student. Uh, so that could be their entire grade or at least a significant enough portion of their grade. So if if they don't do well, they bomb the class or they bomb that marking period. If they do well, you know, you're, you're really in the clear for the rest. And you, you probably could coast the rest of the way, right? You do a good job on one and then it doesn't even matter. So just to recap, all right, toxic grading practices, the use of zeros, using the average of all scores and the use of a single assessment or assignment that makes or breaks a student? Uh, yeah, the two out of three of those, I'm thinking, yeah, I used to do that <laughs> for myself. It's kind of funny, a couple of weeks ago on my Learning Revolution show that you were on, we talked about podcasting a couple of weeks ago, I had two friends on and we had a, a wheel of educational topics that we were spinning and one of them was zeros. And so as you're reading that, I was just laughing, thinking back to the conversation. And I did used to give zeros a lot. I mean, if something wasn't done, there was a zero. When I went through school, you didn't turn an assignment or a project, you had time to do it, turn in for partial credit, you get the zero. But over the years, I mean, the thing that we're hearing is, how do you come back from a zero? Like if you set the minimum at like a 50, then a student can still, you know, rebound from that and build up. You know, now, can I, can I just follow up with that? Just uh, I'm, I'm curious when you say, you know, a minimum of a 50, is that for every assignment or is that for a whole marking period? Uh, for assignments. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I know that my school definitely each marking period. And as a matter of fact, I think just today or yesterday, uh, we got an email that reminded teachers that the lowest you can go on in a marking period is 50 for the reason you just mentioned, so that you can at least give students the opportunity to climb out of that hole in, in subsequent marking periods. But I believe teachers still have the flexibility, if you will, on assignments, if they so choose, to go as low as a zero. And um, I don't think that's fair. Uh, again, I, I think you, you said it best just a minute ago where it's like you do that and, and you, you kill a kid's chance of, uh, of getting out of that hole. It actually happened to me at a doctoral level. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in a statistics, uh, statistics course, which is, I mean, that's always one of the most difficult courses. You're talking about doctoral level statistics. I'm, I'm no math teacher. Uh, so, it was hard enough and I actually bombed an assignment, not because I did it wrong. Get this, because I was using a Chromebook, the PDF file that I needed to access that had the right formulas and values on it didn't show up right. So I couldn't do it right. Actually, let me take that back. I did it right, but with the wrong formulas. So all my answers were wrong. And I tried, I pleaded my case and it just didn't work. And so I I think I got a zero on that assignment. And somehow, somehow, d- due to some miracle, I was able to still pull an A in the course, but it was very difficult. You know, it put a lot of pressure on me to get perfect scores basically on the rest of the assignments for that that term. And um, not that I, re- you know, I, if I didn't get an A in the course, you know, who's going to really go back and look at my transcript, I guess. But um, it, it meant, you know, it meant a lot to me. And, and having not, gotten a good grade on that just because uh 
I, the assignment like literally didn't show up properly for me. That that was really frustrating. Yeah, I can imagine that would be pretty terrible. It's when it comes to zeros for a long time. I was teaching the way that I was taught, and so if you never turned in an assignment, you got a zero. If you didn't complete a portion of assignment, you got a zero. And then over I don't know how many years now, like turning in the work a little bit later. So you get get some partial credit. But I had a student last, or I guess probably about two years ago, and the assignment, it was a project. They had had time in class to do it, probably three or four days. And the, the assignment, nothing was ever turned in. And so time passed. So it stayed a zero in the grade book because there was nothing that I could put in for it. And they came into class one day, at, again, long after it was due and said, I wanted to ask about that project. I said, yes, I got a zero on it. And I said, I, I know, but you hadn't turned anything in. So I couldn't put any other grade in for it. Well, I, I submitted it last night and I hadn't a chance to see that. I mean, this is early in the morning. It was like late at night. And I said, okay, well, I'll take a look. And I said, I'll give you some credit for it. And the funny thing was, is I said, well, it was due two months ago. And the student responded, well, I don't really see why that matters. And I just laughed because I thought, okay, I can't, you know, it's funny because they said, I don't see why it matters. I said, well, it kind of matters because it was assigned two months ago. You had multiple days in class to work on it. So you should have had something done. Plus, and I know this gets pushed back sometimes too, like in the real world, which we are preparing them for job, career, college, whatever, they, they will have assignments to do in a sense. They will have a task or some responsibility. And if they're their own boss, manager, whatever, they will still have a time frame to work with. And sometimes that might be, you know, over a couple of day period. And I said to this student, you might not have your job right now because here we are two months later. But every time I think about it, it makes me laugh because the response after that was, I said, well, why don't you think that that matters that much? And they said, because it's not like I don't know the material. It's not like I didn't start it. I was just lazy. I just didn't finish it. I know all of it, but I just, I didn't get it done then. And I kind of forgot about it. And, and now I did it. So I always kind of keep that in the back of my mind. What do I want them to take away at the end of the course? Of course, I want them to be able to, to speak in Spanish, but I also need to help them develop other skills. And they need to, they're only going to have a chance to develop those skills if they have an opportunity to practice. So I, if I give them a zero and I never give them the chance to go back and get some credit for it, then that's not doing them any good either. And if I give them a zero on a 100 point project, and if there's 400 points in the nine weeks, I mean, the best that they could get, I'm not that great at math either, which is why the statistics kept me out of the doctoral program for my ed tech. Uh, that's a 75%. So I, I don't know. I, I could see going back and forth. Like if they don't turn anything in, well, then it has to be a zero because what are you grading? But when it comes down to it, even when the schools were closed, some students, you know, they couldn't join in because of access and everything, you know, all of those other issues. So if they at least did something, I mean, you had, we gave them a, a 50 because the rest of the year, the grades are average to get their end of the year grade. And uh, if you give them a zero, I mean, that just, totally wipes out the prior three nine weeks where maybe they might have had straight A's and then things happen at the end of this past school year that maybe were beyond their control. And so what are you going to do with that? Well, I, I'm glad that you brought up the piece about um, 
I don't want to call it a mindset. Uh, I do think in some ways it's still a bit of a traditional way to think of grading students, which is, well, we're preparing them for the real world or when they get out there in the real world and they have a job, they might have uh, assignments or tasks to complete. And if they don't do it on time, um, I, you know, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't love that, that uh, sentiment per se. But what I do appreciate is when like when you were mentioning about that student that got a zero on the assignment but basically said well it's not that I don't know what I'm doing that's how I felt when I got the zero on my doctoral level statistics assignment I did the work properly like literally I ran through the um, you know t-test or f-test or whatever statistic uh, statistical test we were doing I did it properly and I and I felt like if I could prove that to the the instructor and the and the college that I should be able to get a better grade on the assignment. But alas, they did not fall for that. Um, what I did want to bring up, though, is a story about a student. I, I was put back in the classroom a couple of years ago after my instructional coaching position was cut. And um, I had about 115 students. And I think out of that 115 or so, I failed two or three students in the one full marking period that I that I was back in the classroom for. But I passed one student with a 65, which is the, the minimum passing grade at, at my school. And I was the only teacher to have passed this student. And I got some looks and some questioning from the other teachers, even on my team, about how could you have passed her? She um, she never does our work. She just, uh, how could you even tell that she knew what she was doing? And, and my rationale for it was she never did homework, but I, I rarely gave homework. A lot of my homework as a reading teacher was just, you know, go home and, and read. Um, and, and I ha had assignments that went along with that to hold students accountable for their reading. It wasn't like I couldn't tell whether or not they were doing it. Um, but in class, the way that I structured my class was such that I really either conferenced with students or worked with students in uh, small groups to the point where I I knew, like, let's be honest, this student was not going to turn in any work unless I, as the teacher, were sitting with her either individually or in a small group to do it. And that's frustrating for a teacher, sure. But at the same time, at least it told me she could meet that minimum, bare minimum, you know, 65 grade of I can at least do a little bit. And that was my rationale to the to the other teachers. And I don't know if they ever agreed with it or disagreed with it. I haven't been at that school in a couple of years, but that that's how I was able to explain it, you know, where it was like, look, sure, she can't do the work on her own. She was also, uh, I should mention, being referred or, or tested for uh, special services uh, and, and had a lot going on outside of school as well. So I was like, you know, with all of that that she has going on, if she can at least show me that she can do some work, even if it's just sitting with me, that that's the only time she could do it, then that's a 65. Uh, that's how I looked at it. Yeah. And I, I've known a lot of teachers that have had similar situations to that. And sometimes for some students, like it's just the, not that they necessarily don't want to do the work. Sometimes it's, they don't know exactly how to do the work or there's that fear of failure, not doing it right. And they need that encouragement. And that's why when we look at assessments and grading, again, something else that I, I always thought like, oh, a a it has to be a test, it has to be a paper, tangible, whatever. But 
we can have conversations. We can ask them to tell us, you know, what it is that you're learning. What do you understand about this? And use that to figure out where they are and to provide the support. But doing that is uncomfortable, I think, because traditionally it has always been teach, review, assess, whatever that form is. And um, getting away from that, especially for me for a long time, was like I said, it was really uncomfortable um, knowing, you know, the grades and not like, I mean, giving them half credit or setting up policies that say, okay, if you turn in within this amount of time, like, like a rubric, for example, so here's your project, you've had time in class to work on it. It's due another week from now. If you turn it on the date, great. If it's this number of days late, you lose five points. And I think I started to do that more because that's what I was seeing in classes. I was taking as um, like graduate school level courses, not so much in law school, that kind of thing didn't happen. But I was just trying to pull in different ideas because I, I recognized that like I wasn't giving students the chance because I was cutting off that opportunity by just, here's a zero. Nope, you can't turn in late. Yeah. And um, a minute ago, you brought up the fact that part of grading an assessment, hopefully, uh, is that ability for teacher and student to have discussions around their work, uh, whether they understand it, whether they don't, what their strengths and weaknesses are and, and where they can head in terms of improving. And, and I feel like that is a natural segue into talking about feedback. Uh, I did find some research here that I wanted to use to highlight that feedback piece. Uh, this comes from researchers Jeffrey Shinsky and Kimberly Tanner uh, back in 2014. This was an article called Teaching More by Grading Less. And in parentheses, it says, or differently. All right. So teaching more by grading less or differently. And they said about feedback that feedback is generally divided into two categories, evaluative feedback and descriptive feedback. Evaluative feedback, such as a letter grade or written praise or criticism, judges student work, while descriptive feedback provides information about how a student can become more competent. Along with that, and I forget where I heard this, it was probably on another podcast, but I, I wish I could credit the source. Uh, somebody recently said that basically a grade without that feedback and i'm paraphrasing i wish i i wish i remembered where it came from basically a grade whether it's a letter grade or a number grade without that feedback is torture uh, and i thought that was an interesting comparison but i think that was a, a good comparison in terms of the two types of feedback there's evaluative and there's uh that that aspect that is probably more meaty and worthwhile and valuable which is um the, the kind that really provides more of an explanation for what a student didn't do and, and what they need to do better the next time. Yeah. And the thing with feedback too, there's always on like Twitter chats, there's always a lot of discussion about, you know, what does feedback look like? What are the forms of feedback that you can give? How, give, how much time should you have for feedback? And it's always like timely, authentic, you know, making that connection, uh, connecting it with like pointing out different things along the learning. And so it's not for me for a long time, when I would think of the word feedback, I always thought it was something negative. Like I'm going to be hearing exactly what I'm doing wrong. And it shouldn't be that it should be pointing out a lot of different things, right? Like, here's what I notice about, okay, this is an area where I think you can work on. Here are some things I know that you're doing well and improving on. It, it, it's an ongoing process. So it's not like, okay, we just finished this lesson 
now we're totally done. Here's your feedback. We're moving on. It should be something that's kind of ongoing throughout the process so that you can take that feedback and then act upon it, give different opportunities for students or help them to kind of self-direct and find some opportunities for themselves to work on different areas. And I, again, it's an, I feel like I'm just constantly evolving in different areas and changing based on my own experience. And I don't know if that's just me or a lot of educators kind of felt that same way when they started teaching, like thinking about, okay, this is what my experience was, this worked for me, so this is what I'm going to do. But as I've kind of gotten on a few more years in my career and seen the impact on students and also had feedback from students because we need it too, tried to really make some changes in that area. So it's interesting to hear like like you said, the evaluative and what did you say? The descriptive? Descriptive feedback, right. yeah. Yeah, so giving yeah, the I, number and describing. Yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely safely say that uh, throughout my career and um, and even in my work as a, as a coach now, albeit with uh, adult learners, the, the teachers in my building, uh, my, my mindset has, has totally changed in terms of feedback. Like my... I can vividly remember uh, my first year teaching. It was basically that first uh, major essay assignment that I that I assigned to my students. How much red ink I wrote on their papers with, and and basically, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I really pawed through it with a fine tooth comb, and I gave them all the corrections they had to make, and like that was my feed. There was no feedback actually. It was just corrections, and it was like, all right you make these corrections that I told you that you have to make and you you don't have any say in the matter. And uh, by the way, peer feedback, that wasn't a thing yet either. Um, so basically, it's just me kind of writing your paper for you um, after you already put a lot of time and effort into it. Uh, but over the years, definitely, especially when it came to writing as an ELA teacher, uh, using peer feedback and and just getting the students themselves to to comb through their own work with a with a more careful lens it, it free it actually freed my time up a lot more. I didn't have to go through every single you know 120 essays as carefully as I needed to at one point. Uh, but also, you know, it definitely allowed students to take more ownership of their work. And uh, of course, you know, wrapping it back around to the conversation on feedback, it did allow me the opportunity to spend less time uh, evaluating their work even before it was a finished product. And conferencing with them to say, hey, I noticed that, um, you know, your, your grammar is lacking or, you know, whatever I was I was going to be talking to that student about. So it it has evolved and it definitely helped. And and, you know, we talk about uh, how teachers are, are bringing a lot of work home and, and working on nights and weekends. That's something that helped me was actually this feedback piece, because I felt like the more feedback, the more descriptive feedback I could give and the less evaluative type feedback, I actually felt like I had more time on my hands because I wasn't grading students as vigorously as I once was. Yeah. And you brought up something too about the red ink. Uh, just gives me, I think back to all of my years in school of how much of my work was returned with red ink and the types of feedback that was written on it. And I went back probably a couple of years ago and at my parents, they have some old notebooks and things. I mean, from it goes way back, grade school, high school. And I can see some certain classes where teachers wrote in a lot of red ink and the comments, I'm surprised at reading some of them, like that some of the comments were, what were you thinking here? Or there is no such word as this with like five exclamation points. And you get that paper back covered in red ink. And for a student, it's like, wow, 
did I do anything right? And everybody else could see that. And so one of the first things that I decided as a teacher was I, I was not using red ink just because the way that it made me feel. So I always use like blue, sometimes green, sometimes purple, but also because I've had students over the years who the colors of green and red, like they cannot see those. And so I think there's just so much with like all of that red ink, but I was spending so much time grading papers and putting the grade and putting corrections on the paper and like writing the right answers in. It was taking me hours upon hours if I would give a test in like French or Spanish. And I noticed that the students would get the paper back, they would see the grade and they would want to crumple it and throw it in the garbage if it wasn't a good grade. They wouldn't even look at any of the comments, the feedback that I was thinking that I was giving to them. And I'm like, oh my goodness. I said, I took all that time to write that down, but I wasn't actually giving them feedback. I was writing in the right answers. <laughs> that wasn't really going to help them to do that. And so over the years, another thing that I changed was like, let's go over this. Let's talk about it. You know, what do you notice about this and having those conversations and got away from putting so much of like a narrative on their paper because they're not necessarily going to look at that, but opening up more to having a conversation with them and kind of working with them. So they're not feeling, I mean, cause it's easy to feel defeated if you see a lot of mistakes on there, uh, especially if they're like some of my papers used to be with lots of red. You know, I feel like this is a great time also to bring up because I, I think that we would not be doing uh, enough good to a topic like this without bringing up the differences between formative and summative assessment. Uh, and especially that we're talking about feedback and really providing students with opportunities to improve. You know, f formative assessment, in my opinion, and I'm not citing research here, this is, you know, uh, this is a Dan Krinus original. Um, it's still not nearly used as much as it should be in the classroom. And um, again, that's my experience. But, uh, you know, we're, we're really talking about the difference between assessing uh, assessing for learning versus, uh, you know, just figuring out what, what a student uh, can or can't do and just leaving it at that. So, you know, ideally, formative assessment should have this kind of descriptive feedback with it. And, um, you know, that that's that's kind of black and white, you know, either you do informative assessment or you're not. Either you're giving a student feedback, you know, va valuable feedback so they can improve or you're not. But I guess I also I'm curious to know where you land on this uh, side of the debate as well, because I know that this is still happening. Again, my experience, no research here where teachers are still grading assessments or, or somehow scoring assessments that are of a formative nature, where they should be solely or mostly giving feedback. They're grading it, giving it back and saying, like, you need to improve. But then a student really doesn't know how to improve. Yeah, you're calling me out on that one a little bit. Oh, uh, no, I didn't, I didn't make <laughs> yeah, it on the spot. Well, you know <laughs> what? It's, it's, uh, it's challenging. And I always think about the analogy, and I can't think, because a lot of times people, for me for a long time, I didn't know the difference of formative versus summative. And lots of little helpful mnemonics. There's an image about like the soup and a cook. And if you know, I can't even think of it offhand, but it was something about like when the soup is, or when the soup, when the cook is cooking the soup and he tastes it, like that's the formative assessment. When he serves it to everybody else, that's like the summative. Uh, there's a way better visual than that out there. But for me, figuring out like as a language teacher, there are a lot of ways that I can have formative, formative assessments in my classroom. And I recall years ago, I think it was for our final exams for my school. Like we have the four, nine, four grading periods. There was a midterm exam. There was a final exam. And when I first started teaching at my school, I thought, 
I don't remember ever having to take a final exam in high school. And maybe it's just that I forgot, but I remember part of it, they wanted to have like an objective portion and a subjective portion. And then there were certain components like they would ask, what are you doing? What are your formative assessments? What's your summative? And I was quite confused because honestly, my preparation in undergrad for education, I didn't have like compared to what is available now for people going through and becoming like pre-service educators and going through all those programs to become educate teachers. It is so different from what my experience was. So when you talk about like methods and all of these different practices, I really didn't know as much as I needed to when I started. So that's why I always say I'm totally learning as I go. But with assessments in my classroom, like I was giving quizzes and I was giving quizzes and I was grading the quizzes because again, that's what my experience was when I took French in high school. Homework assignments, uh, if I would use like an entrance ticket, an exit ticket, those types of things, things that students would work on in class, activities, speaking assignments, assessments, anything like that, all formative assessments. But yes, I, I mean, when I give a quiz, to me, a quiz is it's for a grade because it's just a small test. I even joke with my students like, yeah, we're going to have a quest, which is it's not as small as a quiz and it's not as big as a test, but it's kind of in between. And I know there's a ton of debate about you know grading those quizzes. But for me, my whole experience was quizzes were graded. And then summatives, of course, being like the end of the chapter test or some project or some end of, you know, end of the year or mid semester type of an exam, which those are graded. And so you kind of got me on a little bit with the, with the grading, with the assessments, because again, like for me, quizzes, it's here it is. Now, do I give students a chance to kind of retake those? Yes. Uh, I look at it. And if I can tell that, you know, there are a lot of things missing in whatever we're working on. So like verbs, the conjugations or things are out of place or the vocabulary, like I see things. I mean, I'm not going to give to allow a student to get like a three out of a 30 because I'm using that to see, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to help them to do and plan for, you know, better steps moving on. But yes, I have used quizzes as formative assessments and also given grades for those quizzes and for homework. All right. Not judging. (laughs) Um, Actually, I was curious as you were talking to know, because I've been in uh, teaching positions where this was a stipulation. Uh, does your school now or, or has your school in the past or uh, at any point during your career given a number of minimum grades that you have to give a student for a marking period? And I could be wrong. I think years ago, there might have been that you had to have so many of something, whether it was a mix, like, because we have categories now. So I have, I used to have, everything was like equal. So they had to test 100 points, project 80 points, added all the points up, not uncommon in my class to have 600 points at the end of nine weeks, figure out the student's points, and then that was the percent. If they missed something, you know, kind of change that total of points, but we did a lot of different things in my class. But now, because what I found was with homework, copying or using translators, those types of things that for a language teacher, kind of difficult. Uh, I got rid of like everything being equal. And so I have things categorized now. So classroom practice, classwork, if there is a homework assignment, which I don't tend to give a lot of homework and quizzes or projects or things like that. But to my knowledge, I mean, there's not anything specific that says like, you have to have this many of each of these categories because it's kind of up to the teachers to decide what categories they have. And some teachers are using standards-based grading as well. So there is a difference. 
we're going to start to wrap up here. And, and just for the listeners' sake, uh, there is so much that goes into this topic of, of assessment and grading. And, and please, if you have comments or questions about anything that Rochelle and I have said or, or anything that you want to add to this topic, we'd appreciate it. Flipgrid.com slash devil's advocate would be a great place to leave that feedback. Otherwise, leaderoflearning.com and, and click on the contact page and you can always send a message that way. Um, as we wrap up, here's another question that I was curious to get your thoughts on. What do you feel about perfect scores, like giving a kid 100 on an assignment or, or even going over 100, which I've seen teachers do where there's like bonus questions or extra credit? What do you, what do you, what, where, where do you stand there? I, I can't tell you You're how like, many oh, times. You got me again. <laughs> I <know>. Yeah, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times like over the years I've had, I mean, even now, just what can I do for extra credit? What can I, you know, the bonus points. And I have had bonus questions on tests before. Uh, just some random things. And sometimes, honestly, I've had questions that I put onto a quiz or a test that as I was preparing it, in my mind, I was thinking, you know, that I had adequately adequately covered certain things. And then what I found is like, wait, you know, I didn't and all the students are missing it. But some of the students got it because when they studied, they studied all of the vocab or they might have caught it even if I only said it one time. So then in those occasions, I might have said, well, you know, if you get it, it's a bonus point. If you don't get it, it's not a big deal. With the extra credit, it's kind of a back and forth. I mean, I I have done, especially at the end of this past year, I offered some things out there just because the type of situation we were in, some activities if students wanted to try because they were, I mean, they were cultural activities, they were fun activities. I wanted them to kind of be excited about the language. And they were just for some minimal points, not that they necessarily needed them, but we can't give more than 100%. So even in our grade book, if students end up somehow with 104, I've seen 108% sometimes come up on grade books and it's like, you still have to change it to 100. Now, perfect scores, is there ever really a perfect anything is what I want to say. But no, I, I agree with that. I agree. Yeah, I, I, have, I have had many students who... I, I mean, just lit, like they really, they don't miss, I mean, they, they make mistakes, we all make mistakes, but the mistakes that they're making are not based on the content and the, like the level of what we are studying. And the things that they would tend to miss are these higher, more complex grammar structures that they don't learn, that they don't even necessarily learn until maybe if they take it in college or something or spend time in a Spanish speaking country. So I have had some that they answer every question, they meet all the points. Do they make some minor things? Yeah. But I always think, you know, if they were having a conversation with somebody and they were able to pronounce this and maybe they missed an accent mark on the spelling of a word, like, am I going to take two points off because they missed that accent mark? Well, if it changes the meaning of the word, I guess. But if they could sit down and say the exact same thing to me, and I don't know if that word had the accent when they said it, well, then I guess they had that 100%. So yeah, I, I have I had some. I've always had a thing about students getting perfect scores that just doesn't sit well with me. Uh, Cause like you said, you know, how many, how many people are really perfect at, at what they do? Um, I, there was, I had a student one time in essentially what was kind of like an honors course or, or working with students who uh, were the more gifted students in their grade levels. And uh, she, I believe the student got a 96 or 97 average overall average for a marking period, which is really good, obviously, out of 100. 
and she wrote me an email and said, uh, Mr. Krinas, you're my only class that I don't have a perfect score in. And my parents told me that if I got perfect, perfect scores in all of my classes, they would let me lease a horse. And of course, now I'm like, oh my God, I'm the only reason why this girl can't have like her own horse. That's, that's a lot of pressure for a teacher. But I stuck to my guns and I said, you know, we had this, this writing assignment. And, and, you know, I talked a little while ago about how you can't have one assignment make or break a student. And, and I don't want to give the wrong impression here. I only saw these students every week. So there weren't a lot of grades to, to go around. Uh, but there was one writing assignment in particular where I graded her down a little bit. And so when, when we had that conversation, and by the way, I didn't do this all over email because I was like, you know what, it's time that, that you kind of face the music here and, and grow up a little bit and let's talk about it in person. So I, I sat her down and I said, this one writing assignment, like, how do you, how do you feel like in terms of your effort? How do you feel you did? Did, did, did you do your best work? Did you really put forth, you know, your best effort? Not your perfect effort, right? But your best effort. And she admitted to me, no, I didn't. And I was like, well, there you go. I mean, I'm not saying that I always allowed students to dictate their grades, but that to me was a good indication of how I felt like I had accurately graded her on that assignment and especially overall because she literally admitted to me that she wasn't perfect. She did not put her best effort into that assignment. And I was like, well, you know, you, you can't maybe get perfect scores all the time. I don't know. I'm a little old school in that regard, I guess. But um, for the rest of this stuff, I'm pretty non-traditional. The perfect score thing, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because the other thing, as you were saying that too, is then where's the room to grow or improve? Like we, I mean, you say there's always another step. There's always something different that you could do a, a way to improve. So if it's a 100, then that says, oh, I don't have anything to improve. But I don't know, that might be another discussion. There's, there are so many sides to it. And what works for you or makes sense for you individually as a teacher and your students doesn't necessarily work the same, make the most sense for somebody else. And I think that's just the importance of, importance of listening to the different sides and evaluating like, what have I been doing? Okay, is this the right method, the right strategies? Is there something that I could change that's gonna be better for students? It's gonna be better for me? Um, I don't know. I know another, one other teacher, I'll tell you one other thing for years, like me was just giving individual feedback on every single paper and not just the correct answers, but writing and trying to be helpful. And again, like I can't, I mean, how many times I would find those tests crumpled because they just cared about the grade. And so having those conversations and really making time for it to give that feedback. So it's like, what did you do? What questions do you have? Okay, now what are you going to do from here? It makes a big difference. Well, I think we're going to end there because you gave actually a, a few sort of reflection questions that educators themselves can use to determine how they want to approach grading. And you've been left there with maybe even a couple of, of questions about students and, and feedback. So I think that's a good place to wrap up. It, it's been a great conversation and we are not like it's the iceberg, right? The tip of the iceberg. We've barely cracked the surface of assessment and grading, but it's been a great discussion. Again, if you're listening, you have more thoughts and ideas or comments or concerns, please reach out uh, leaderoflearning.com slash contact or better yet flipgrid.com slash devil's advocate and literally uh, send us a message about you know what, what you thought about this, what your feelings are about assessment and grading, whether Rochelle and I did it right or wrong, you know, in, in, in our practices, no, I, you know, whatever, 
whatever you want to share, please do so. Flipgrid.com slash devil's advocate. Rochelle, thanks as always for a great conversation. Thank you. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us. We encourage you to help contribute to the series. If you want to suggest topic ideas or comment on any of the conversations we have about trending topics in education, please participate on Flipgrid using the topic code Devil's Advocate or visiting flipgrid.com slash Devil's Advocate. If you haven't done so yet, don't forget to subscribe to the Leader of Learning podcast on your favorite podcast app. Also, if you enjoy the content shared on the show, please recommend this podcast to others. I would also appreciate it if you'd leave a positive rating and review on iTunes or Podchaser. Links to leave ratings and reviews can be found in the show notes. Thanks, and see you again for another episode of The Devil's Advocate next month.